1: We start with the big story this week in our province, We uh, the decriminalization of drug possession in British Columbia, now in effect in B.C., 2.5 grams of heroin, c- cocaine, including crack cocaine, crystal meth, ecstasy, and fentanyl, 2.5 grams, the legal possession limit here now, adults in B.C. now permitted to possess these drugs without a criminal charge, police will not charge users, will not take away their drugs. Let's discuss now with my guest, Jennifer Whiteside, British Columbia's Minister of Mental Health and Addictions. I'm very pleased to welcome the minister to the show. Minister, thank you very much for coming on today.
2: Good morning, Mike. Happy to be here.
1: Thank you for doing it. Okay, we are the only province in Canada that's doing this right now, decriminalizing possession of these hard drugs. What are you trying to achieve with this program?
2: You know, the the primary uh, objective of decriminalizing small amounts of these drugs um, for uh, people who are caring for personal use really is to address the stigma, the shame, the fear associated with drug use so that we can uh, remove that barrier and provide another opportunity for that individual to seek care, support uh, if they, if, if, if that's what they need. We also want to make sure that our frontline policing resources are directed towards dealing with criminal activity related to the drug take to trafficking, to, to production of drugs. And Really, Mike, this responds to a call that has been made for many years from people with lived and living experience, from public health, from frontline uh, uh, physicians who care for uh, for people with substance use issues, from law enforcement. So really, this is the product of uh, of a very diverse range of stakeholders coming together. Um, to, to work this through and make this happen.
1: Okay, when we talk about that reducing that stigma as the, the primary goal here, how do you intend to measure that? How do you intend to determine whether the, the stigma or shame around drug use has been reduced and that the program has been successful?
3: Yeah, I mean, we, you know, we, um,
2: we've been working very closely with, uh, with law enforcement partners, um, right. They're working through uh, through training through, through training modules. You know, we have the uh, uh, so, uh, the deputy chief chief of the, the VPD, Fiona Wilson, who's been a very eloquent and powerful advocate for uh, uh, for this move. Part of it really is about changing that interaction between uh, between law enforcement and people who are carrying small amounts for personal personal use. And there will be an opportunity in that interaction for, um, for police to be, to become part of, uh, the, um, pathway to, um, to care and support to connect them with health authority resources, uh, in their local area, um, so that folks can reach out for that.
1: And okay. we have,
2: uh, substance abuse navigators now in health authorities at the other end of a phone to help, uh, to help folks when they get that call.
1: Okay, I guess I'm just trying to figure out how the program is going to be measured or monitored, and what kind of data you'll be collecting and sharing with the public. Because I know yep. that's that's part of your commitment here. Yeah, so uh, if a,
3: absolutely. If, absolutely, yep. Right.
1: So, so on on the stigma issue, which, which you identify as the primary goal here, like, are you going to like poll the public on it or something, or how do you measure well, that? I'm,
2: well, one one of the measurements will be. Um, are we seeing an uptick in, um, in folks reaching out and calling uh, for, uh, for help, for access to um, services provided through health authorities, through our community partners who provide um, substance use care and treatment? Uh, what, what are we seeing through those? What are, we see, what are we seeing coming up through what are police reporting about their interactions on the ground? Right. And importantly, we have public health and physicians involved in this process as well. What are what are they seeing happening with people that they are providing care for? Right.
1: Speaking to BC Addictions Minister Jennifer Whiteside on the decriminalization of drug possession in BC. So so speaking of people getting help, like I, I think that's certainly an honorable goal here to get people into treatment. If someone's listening to this show right now, if they're addicted to drugs or maybe a loved one is a family member, a friend is addicted... Can they get help right now, like if they phone the ministry today? Can they get into a program?
2: I, what I'd like them to do is to go to wellbeing.gov.bc.ca, where they will be able to see all of the resources that are available in their region. They can go to that website, the front page of that website. Um, you know, They're able to input the, the region that they're in, the city, the community that they're in. Um, you know, click on that community, and that will go to where um, to where there are services are, av- are available. In some areas, there might be virtual services available, or there will be other sort of bricks and bricks and mortar um, services available. And uh, I, you know, I think Mike, there's no question that you know we've invested. We, we made in a historic $500 million investment in 2021 to stand up more services across the continuum from counseling to treatment beds to detox beds. Right each uh, you know to child and youth mental health to expanding the foundry network and we know we need to do more we know yeah. that uh that that more is needed because we know that uh that 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 the crisis is is deepening and uh, we we have to continue uh, to make the investments and to stand we, up the services and find the staff to staff those services as well. We
1: cover we cover this a lot in the show, and, and we get a lot of calls from people who say that they have trouble getting any kind of help from government or or the health ministry to get help for loved ones. Like I'm taking a look right now at the recent report from the Select Standing Committee on Health, and it yeah. says right in the report that the members on this committee uh, noted extended wait times and a lack of resources for treatment and recovery. Minister, let me play a clip here for you from a mother who spoke recently to Global News about trying to get her her drug-addicted son into treatment. Here's what she had to say to Global News, and I'll get your thoughts.
4: I've
3: asked for, begged for support from different government
5: agencies, and no one would help him. No one would help him, and he's spiraled out of control
1: we hear this a lot and i'm sure you've heard it too like what do you say to people who say they've tried and they can't get they can't get help
2: yeah and i'm uh, first first and foremost very very sorry for the situation that, that 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 mother and her and her and her child are are in um i i and i do i do hear from uh, from folks about um struggles of accessing help and you know that also the, the the dynamic that we see of you know wh- when when are individuals ready to reach out for help and sometimes they get to that step and then they then they might step back. There's no question that we need to do a better job and we're working to do a better job on coordinating. Um, a coordinating access to the services that are there so that there's a stronger pathway between, um, uh, between community services and health, authority and health authority services. And really importantly, and this is, again, kind of cycling back to why the decriminalization effort is important and reducing stigma and fear is important, because we need to have mental health and substance use really integrated into our primary care system. We need frontline primary care um, providers to really be in a position to know I, you know, if somebody, somebody shows up in my office, I do a screen, I think they've got a problem, I need to know where to connect them for care. And that is well, work that is also underway.
1: What do you say to the argument that uh, drug possession, especially in the city of Vancouver, has already been effectively de- decriminalized for years That the Vancouver Police Department, say they don't charge people for possession of these small amounts of drugs? For, for many years now, and the and the situation in the city is is just gotten worse every single year. It's the worst it has ever been. Uh, let me play a clip here for you from the, the federal conservative leader on this point, Pierre Polyev, who was on the show yesterday, who, who was very uh, very much an opponent to what you're doing here. And uh, yeah, then I'll get your thoughts, Pierre Polyev, on yesterday's show.
5: Hard drugs have largely been decriminalized in Vancouver now for five six years. That's when the federal liberal government. The provincial NDP and the then-NDP mayor basically told the cops, don't enforce the law. If you find someone with fentanyl, heroin, uh, or other hard drugs, just let them go. And what has happened? Well, take a, a, a walk down the east side.
1: What do you say to a Minister.
2: Yeah, well, I say that that, that's just wrong. It's just actually simply wrong. Um, While while there's uh, while there has been direction to um, um, to uh, to uh, law enforcement to um, to not arrest in situations where uh, in situations where people are carrying small amounts for personal use, we do know that police have continued to seize drugs. And continue to seize um, harm reduction uh, supplies that individuals may be carrying with them, and we we, we know that that is the case in Vancouver um, that there have that there have continued to be seizures of one or two uh, people carrying one or two grams. So uh, that is and that that that's, that's an important uh, that's an important point here because what doctors have said to me is that. Uh, they have a concern about the potential risks of a situation when one of their patients has procured a supply, and perhaps that is a safe supply that they've procured, yeah. and they have an encounter with the police, that drug gets seized. They, need, they then need to go pro- procure another supply somewhere, and maybe that second supply isn't as safe. Maybe it's got a high, you know a high, do- a high uh, concentration of fentanyl in it. So there's a risk there that has been uh, explained to me by physicians as, as, as a concern. So the, 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 the direction to, to, to police now to not, not only not charge but not seize drugs is a very important element um, of, this, of this process. And you know, right. I'd say that what we have seen over the last couple of years, over the course of the pandemic, is absolutely a deepening of this crisis in the context of a global pandemic that fundamentally shifted access to care for people, how communities could function in terms of you know our ability to gather and, and, and get to and, and get together and. Um, there, th- those have had profound implications for the toxic poisoning drug crisis, no question. But if you go back to 2019 and you look at the results of the work that we did in 2017 and 2018 when this ministry was first stood up and our government first started to take really to pull together all of the, the, the services and all of our efforts to really focus in on this issue, we started to see some real progress. We saw, we saw toxic drug poisoning deaths reduce in 2019 for the first time in years. And that, so we know that what we were doing was working, and we know that if we double down on those efforts, we can make that progress again.
1: Minister, thank you for your time today. I appreciate it.
2: Thanks so much, Mike. Have a good day. Take care.
4: Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If Only in Theatres, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? Right, right, I'll do. It. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch.
3: Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG.
1: All right, we keep talking about decriminalization of drug possession in BC. You heard my conversation there with the provincial minister responsible Let's check in with the opposition now, Eleanor Sturco Liberal MLA, Surrey South. Eleanor, thank you for coming on.
3: My pleasure, Mike. Good morning.
1: Good morning to you. What do you think of the rollout of this and the way this has been handled here?
3: Oh, my gosh. You know, particularly listening in, listening to Minister Whiteside throw out numbers about how much they've spent on services. We're talking about a government that said, oh, you know, we spent $500 million on addiction. Um, But yet, we just heard yesterday, 2,272 people have died last year in our province. And this is a government that was ready to spend a billion dollars on a museum. You're not going to be through with spending until we have reduced the deaths in British Columbia. And it's absolutely shameful to come on your show and, you know, when faced with a parent who's talking in a clip about their struggle accessing help for their youth, talking about, you know, how easy it's going to be for people to access treatment when well, we already know that's just simply not the case.
1: Okay. Well, she directed people to go to this wellbeing.gov.bc.ca uh, website for mental health and addiction services. So when you I go on, like I'm, like I I'm looking it. at it. Yeah, I'm looking at it right now too. So when people go on there, like if they're looking for help, do they get help on the site?
3: You know what, I when I was listening to that, I was like, you know what, I'm going to check it out. Because if it is if it is just as simple as a couple of clicks away, um, you know, I'll be very impressed. It's difficult to navigate. And I, I would argue that a person who is very sick, someone who is not um, familiar with navigating these type of systems is going to struggle. And we're already knowing that, you know, with the stigma that definitely exists, Reducing that will help people to reach out for help. But it has to be there and it has to be easy to access, has to be something that people can afford. And you know, what are we talking about potentially vulnerable people that might not have access to get online and try and do a virtual session somewhere? It's you know, they had an obligation in their agreement with the federal government to enhance services and access to those services in healthcare, and it doesn't exist. One in five people in British Columbia. Still don't have access to a family doctor. And for many people, the one that they would be most comfortable reaching out for an intimate and private health care issue would be a family doctor.
1: Okay. I think we've heard from a lot of people that it's difficult to access these services. There are long waits. There are shortages of services that are they're not available. Uh, on, on the basic issue, though, of decriminalization of drug possession, you support that, right? The official opposition supports decriminalizing drug possession, Correct.
3: We support a pilot to make sure that this is the right way to go. You know, there are. um, And that's what this is.
1: This is this is a pilot project.
3: okay. Correct. But, you know, we are um, interested definitely in the Portugal model, which includes decriminalization in favor of administrative penalties, which directs people towards. Um, increase access and in Portugal I can tell you that um, in consultations with them they said the one thing that they did was make sure that services treatment counseling were just they were overflowing with abundance in those areas so that as they reduced stigma as time went on people had the ability to to access those services and they also implemented an administrative system that would help compel people into those services when necessary so we're in favor of a pilot because we want to reduce stigma and of course we want to save lives there's nobody arguing against saving lives um but you know i think just taking one piece of you know an internationally acclaimed model and then thinking that you're done your work is absolutely not the case
1: thank you for your thoughts on it today i appreciate it
3: always a pleasure mike take care
1: All right, here we go now with the cost of living in Vancouver, the most expensive city in Canada. Yes, the latest numbers just out from Numbeo, which is an international cost of living database. And once again, we have the dubious distinction of being number one on this list, the most expensive city in Canada. Okay. What are people doing about it here? Well, according to some Vancouver moving companies who track moving destinations, lots of people are choosing to move to Alberta. There's a spike there, people moving to points in Alberta from Vancouver. Also, some people taking a look at Vancouver Island, especially if you can work from home. If people have that mobility option, yeah, you can buy a house or a condo for a lot cheaper somewhere else. Not too far away from Vancouver, just a ferry ride back, right? You know, lots of people are taking a look at that. I got Moore Friedman standing by to discuss. First, have a listen to this here now. Remember these ads from the Alberta government? Listen to this.
6: Hey, Vancouver. I never in my wildest dreams thought I'd leave you and move to Edmonton, but I had this great job opportunity, so I came here in 2019. And so far, I've been pleasantly surprised. The people here are friendly and helpful. The food scene is amazing. There's plenty of stuff to do, and I bought my first house for just over 400000 which is kind of like a cherry on top. Alberta is calling. Learn more at albertaiscalling.ca. A message from the government of Alberta.
1: Yeah, the government of Alberta wants you to move there. I guess a cheaper cost of living would be nice. The only problem is you have to, you got to move, you got to live there. You got to live in Alberta. Okay, let's discuss now with my guest, Limor Friedman. Limor is the founder of Vancouver In The Box, which is a Vancouver moving company. I'm very pleased to welcome Limor to the show. Hi, thanks a lot for coming on today.
6: Hi, Mike. Thank you for uh, having me today. And yes, you're right. I guess Alberta is calling in Vancouver as we're listening. And we decided uh, to compare the last two years, the numbers of how many people moved where, what was the mobility trend, especially because of the pandemic, because it changed a few things. And then I found something that was really interesting and new to me. We know that usually people are moving kind of everywhere from BC to Quebec and uh, Saskatchewan and other provinces, Ontario. But, and, and during 2020, there was about 6.5% of our clients move everywhere in BC. Nothing sticks out. But in 2022, there were 10% moving out of BC and 50 percent of them were going to alberta
1: okay so you've seen this right you've seen this trend of people moving to alberta
6: exactly and they usually young families they either um you know people w- wanted to get more for their money so if you sell if at the beginning of the pandemic you had an apartment in Yelltown,
4: and all yeah. of a sudden
6: you have two uh adults sitting there with uh, working from home and then two kids, addition to that, Zooming with a class, it's impossible to stay. So people wanted more for their money. And I guess this is one of the reasons we've heard about families, young families moving to Alberta. And yeah, and- I think the first thing they did secure a job there, probably.
1: Yeah, yeah, a lot of people looking at that cost of living, especially for housing, like you said. And also, I find it very interesting that your company is seeing more people moving to the island, right? Moving to Vancouver Island. Tell me about that.
6: Yeah, that was not a surprise to me because the last few years, people are looking for a better, uh, not only cost, but also a better life, more outdoors. And at the, if we compare 2020, we had about uh, 6.5% going to the island. And then 2021 was a little lower, um, and I think people because of the pandemic they didn't move as much to the island. But then in 2022 it increased to nine percent. So we had a lot more people going to the island, and not only to the main cities like Lake Victoria and Nanaimo, We see more people going to Comox Valley, to um, uh, Port Alberni. We see people just going to uh, you know you work from home, so why not why not sitting in, on Hornby Island for example. And you see the ferry, uh, there is an increase of the people who are using the ferry, definitely.
1: Right. So when you see people moving to the island, is that one of the things that you've noticed? Like people have said, well, I I can move over there, cheaper housing, it's not that far away, and I can work at home. Like if you're lucky enough to have a job where you're allowed to work from home, I mean, you know, why not, right?
6: Exactly. I think if the seed was planted just before the pandemic and people said, why do I live in Vancouver in a small place, small townhouse or a small apartment where I can actually go live in Comox Valley with lots of outdoors for the kids and a big house in the backyard during the pandemic that accelerates their decision. And they really did the step and they moved forward with the decisions. And they say, you know, we are, we live in a, in a world now where we can leave from home and it becomes the new normal, so why not?
1: Yeah. When you take a look at other destinations, what about moves within British Columbia? Do you see any evidence that people are moving from Vancouver, let's say, to the, the, the interior of BC, to other towns within British Columbia?
6: Yeah. So um, most of our clients, because we are a packing company and we work with different movers, Most of our clients are still between 35 to 50% moving within Vancouver, and usually people like to stay within the city where they are. And we did see increase of people, um, especially in 2021, which was the core year of the pandemic, people moved to the suburb, to the Okanagan, for the same reason. They were looking for bigger space for the same money.
1: Right, yeah, so they're getting more, like, is that the common denominator that you see? Like, when you talk to people, you talk to your clients, and they they describe why they're moving. Is is housing, does that come up frequently, would you say?
6: That would be, I think, 80% of our clients would say we have, you know, the wife is pregnant, maybe, and they're going to be, the family is growing, so they need more space. And the other reason would be a job, like Alberta.
1: Yeah, yeah. Okay, Limor, thank you for coming on to talk about it today.
6: Thank you very much.
1: Okay, let's talk traffic enforcement cameras now. If you're a driver, especially in Metro Vancouver, you know about the network of intersection red light cameras. You blow through a red light, you could have your photo taken by an automatic camera and get a ticket. Also, speed cameras in place in B.C., You speed through an intersection, they can nail you with an enforcement camera for that, too. These cameras are operating 24 hours a day. All these cameras operated by the police, the provincial government, through ICBC. Now, here's the question today. Should municipalities be allowed to set up and operate their own traffic enforcement cameras in their own communities to make the streets safer? Let's discuss with my guest, Teal Phelps-Bonderoff, city councillor in Sanich. I'm very pleased to welcome him back. Councillor, thank you for coming
0: on. It's great to talk to you again. Hope you're having a good morning.
1: I'm, we're doing great here, and I appreciate your time today. So you like this idea, right? You think municipalities should have the authority to do this.
0: Yeah, I recently presented a motion to Saanich Council and it was adopted by my colleagues. So we're going to be sending on a resolution to our regional body and then hopefully on to the Union of British Columbia Municipalities to ask the province to allow municipalities to have this power. And yes, I think it's going to help us improve road safety and road traffic cameras are fantastic. They're a cost effective way of increasing compliance and ensuring that we actually have monitoring on really important areas and the reality is that, you know, having, you know, law enforcement officers pull someone over is dangerous for the officer, it's dangerous for the person being pulled over, and it's resource intensive. I'm not saying we're going to get rid of roadside stops, but when it comes no. to things like speeding through playground zones, rural uh, and remote roads, um, and, uh, you know, and, and high risk intersections, we want the ability to deploy cameras to increase compliance and ultimately make our roads safer.
1: Okay, and right now municipalities are not allowed to do that, right? You don't have the authority. This is strictly up to the police in the province to do this, correct?
0: That's right. So in 2001, uh, photo radar was abolished in British Columbia. It was a liberal election promise. But as you mentioned, there's 140 cameras in 26 communities across British Columbia. These are red light cameras, and they're monitored by the province. And then 35 of those also take speed. Uh, But that's really just problem intersections. It doesn't include playground zones or school zones or other, you know, high-risk areas. And, you know, who knows better than the local city about where these problems are? And uh, we have a responsibility to keep our residents safe.
1: Okay. Are there problems in your community with uh, speeders and people breaking the law?
0: There are, yeah. So Saanich road safety was a major issue in our last election. We've had uh, some very tragic fatalities here in Saanich. And, we are we we've committed to vision zero vision zero is a commitment to have zero fatalities or major injuries on your streets, and british columbia is moving in that direction overall and we haven't achieved that so almost 300 people died on bc roads last year and that's a number that should be zero we should have very strong road safety you shouldn't have to worry about right. dying when you get in your car hop on your bike or walk down the street to get to work or groceries or to get to school and so this right. is something that i think the government should be really stepping up to do and Traffic cameras are part of a broader suite of road safety measures. This is not the one solution. Uh, There's lots of different solutions that include education, design, better laws, but monitoring and enforcement is part of that.
1: Okay, there's a lot of municipal authority right now over local traffic, road maintenance, road design. Policing is ultimately a municipal jurisdiction, local policing. So right now, you know, if your local police department thinks that uh, there's a lot of people speeding through a school zone. Can't they send a cruiser down there and ticket some people?
0: Yeah, absolutely. And so, yeah. and they do. And our our law enforcement is really great for picking the most problem areas in the municipality. But as you said at the top of the hour, they can't do that 24 hours a day. And that's really resource intensive. Having a highly trained law enforcement officer sitting out in a car, grabbing people who are speeding through a playground zone, doesn't seem to be a very responsible allocation of resources when they could be a camera. Um, we can still pop a few cars out in different places, and we still will. But we also don't have the law enforcement capabilities to monitor all playground zones and all school zones. And we see people yeah. tearing through those regularly and endangering the lives of our residents. And and it's expensive, and it's also dangerous. You know, you hear stories of of law enforcement, you know, officers getting struck by cars when they're pulling someone over on the side of a highway. Mm. Um, and you know, it's dangerous for people being pulled over as well. So I think the goal here is to. And and I should mention that. You know, traffic enforcement cameras are used around the world like bc is a weird outlier in canada uh, for not having them for so long and the technology is also coming leaps and bounds since the early 2000s you know when we talked about photo radar that was a single point in time of you know photo how fast you're going at that second maybe you were just speeding up to pass that semi on the highway or you're going a few kilometers over now they have average camera Uh, There's two cameras. The first one takes your speed a couple kilometers down the road. The second one takes your speed. It averages out your speed and allows them to calculate if you were actually speeding over that stretch of road. And there's a lot of other technology that's emerging as well. So I think that's, uh, yeah, it's it's much more cost effective to enforce uh, laws on our streets and the laws are there to keep us safe.
1: Speaking of Saanich City Councillor Teal Phelps-Bonderoff, he feels that municipalities should have authority to set up traffic enforcement cameras. Let's listen to a couple of clips here. Councillor, get your thoughts here. Now, this is Solicitor General Mike Farnworth. So this is the top cop for the province. And he's a big believer in these intersection cameras that are operated by the province right now. Here's what he has to say about them.
4: It's
0: about improving safety. And it's about in, you know, reducing the number of crashes, which means you're reducing the number of fatalities. You're reducing the number of, the number of injuries.
1: Okay. And I'm sure you would agree with him. And now, now here's the other side of it now. Like people will say, and we'll open the phone boards on this and see what people think. But, you know, every time you hear about setting up more of these speed cameras or enforcement cameras, people say, this is a cash grab. This is like, this isn't about safety. This isn't about saving lives. This is about raising money. It's about raising revenue for government. So have a listen to this. This is Chris Thompson. He is with a group called Sense BC, and this is what he says.
0: It's exactly photo radar with a couple of minor details changed. But at the end of the day, you've got a
4: system that's designed to take photos of people's cars and get them to give the government money.
0: Teal, what do you say to that? Well, first of all, the, the, the first point that uh, Mr. Farnworth was saying, Minister Farnworth was saying is true. 60 percent of crashes in British Columbia occur in intersections, according to ICBC. So, you know, the intersection cameras is a good step. And it's something that I applaud. Um, and what I'm proposing is we go a bit further and we actually have the ability to look at places like playground zones and school zones. As far as Chris's comments go, the, the question, of course, is you're only paying money if you're breaking the law. And the goal here is to increase compliance and to make our roads safer. And what you actually see in places that have installed traffic cameras is their road safety improves. So there was a Cochrane review, which is a big meta-analysis of 35 studies. And it found that the average reduction of speed as a result of installing cameras was 1% to 15%. And the portion of vehicle speeding went down between 14 and 65%. And the crashes went down between 8% and 49%. And the serious fatalities went down between eleven and forty-four percent. And basically, when people reduce their speed, it saves lives. And so all the research indicates that when you're driving faster, your crash rate goes up. And when you're driving faster, the seriousness of the injury that occur when a crash occurs goes up as well. And so we want people following the law. And the goal is if people are paying worried about paying money, then don't speed and that's a critical component. And then our roads are safer.
1: Okay, but right now, the system we have, we have a limited number of these cameras. The government has expanded them, but right now, there's kind of a cap on them. There is some strict rules around where they can be located. There is signage required. So motorists have to be warned that these cameras are in place. So it's not like, they, they, you know, they're bringing a fast one on you. They, 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 they tell the public exactly where these cameras are located. If you suddenly say, okay now municipalities all across bc you guys go ahead you guys can set up these cameras too uh you know i i can just see politicians with dollar signs in their eyes right now saying let's set these up in our town man we can make a ton of money so how do you prevent this from becoming like oversaturated be camp speed cameras everywhere
0: well, I think the critical thing you just mentioned is, you know, the provincial government has regulations around how these cameras are deployed. And yeah. if they are allowing municipalities to do that, they're not going to just make it a free for all. It's not going to be Mad Max, the the cameras <laughs> road, as it were. Um, we're going to see legislation requiring municipalities to put up things like signage. And I think that's a good thing, right? The goal here is to get people to slow down and to obey traffic laws. It's not to catch them out going, you know, 0.5 kilometers over the speed limit. And so signage helps. And you see that in the well.
1: Well, how, how much over the limit would trigger a ticket in your mind? Like, would you have to be going like 10 clicks over the limit before you get a ticket?
0: Well, this is something that, of course, you would have to resolve, you know, within the legislation. Um, my understanding would be, you know, there's an av- there's always a little bit of wiggle room, but not too much. You know, there's a speed limit, right? It says 30 kilometers an hour. That means that's the maximum you should be going. Um, and I wouldn't, you know, you know, speculate on like you know one or two kilometers over. I think that's a there. There be some uh, some flexibility that you build into the system there to accommodate normals. What about?
1: What about the fairness argument? Because I hear about this too. Like, let's say, you know, let's say it's your car, but your kid is driving your car that day and your kid blows through a red light or you, or you loan your car to your your neighbor or something and someone else is driving and they get the ticket. Then you get the ticket in the mail because you're the owner of the vehicle, right? Is That's not fair.
0: I mean, if you probably wouldn't want someone driving your vehicle at an unsafe speed. And uh, I mean, that's going to put a lot of peril to your vehicle. The ticket's a lot lower than a massive accident, you know, or an ICPC uh, uh, cost there. Um, and that, I mean, that's sort of one of those things where, you know, you've got your kid driving out in they in your car. You want them to be obeying the law. And yeah. so
1: it would be a deterrent
0: safe, right? Like we don't, yeah, I mean, the whole point is to deter people from breaking the law.
1: We continue talking about traffic enforcement cameras with my guest, Saanich City Councillor Teal Phelps Monderoff. Should municipalities be allowed to set these cameras up? Lots of calls. Peter in Burnaby. Hi, Peter. Go ahead.
5: I had a chance to dispute a red light camera ticket, uh, noticing that, the light seemed to switch really quickly, had a little bit of free time on my hands. So I went and checked several lights through the community and the difference between going uh, green to red amongst the cameras in the area varied from a couple of seconds to four seconds. And when you think about speed and you think about going through, that's a significant piece of this. So Teo respectfully Yes, your intent is positive. You want to avoid accidents, and you're right about what you've said. But you know what? Unfortunately, Mike's point is that absolutely relevant because at that particular light, it was at the base of a hill, and it was a uh. perfect place to catch people.
0: Oh, it was like a speed trap?
5: Exactly. Only yeah. with a camera.
0: Yeah, yeah. Teal, what do you think I, of that? I hear some, yeah, well, I hear something like that. I, I think of two things. One um, is, you know, is you can see it as a speed trap. Right? You can also see it as a danger point where people could die and we should be following the law. But the other thing is, you are right. There has been some studies looking at red light cameras in the United States when they outsource it to private companies. People have raised concerns about the transition between the red or the green and the red um, being different. So the standard in the oh. United States is 3.7 seconds. And some, and as you said, you, you clocked one at four seconds, and there were some jurisdictions where there were concerns that were valid that that number was being dropped down to try and capture people. The goal oh. here is not to entrap people. The goal is to ensure that people follow the law. So we would want to make sure that municipalities and whoever is you know, enforcing these cameras and operating them aren't, you know, tinkering with the mechanics of the lights to uh, keep them at a safe transfer point. And what they actually is. found, too, was in some jurisdictions where they extended the yellow light portion, you know, f- beyond four seconds, it yeah. actually reduced the number of people running red lights. So I think, I think you're right. I mean, The goal here is to increase road safety. It's not to try and trap people out because they were just one split second. Um, you know, they don't want to tap the brakes on the hill. Um, and I think that's, that's the intention of, the, of these kinds of programs, or should be.
1: Dennis and West Van. Hi, Dennis. Go ahead.
5: Uh, I agree with your previous caller and you, Mike. Uh, the question is that who's going to pay for the camera is going to be the taxpayer, number one. Number two, if you dispute the ticket, it's still going to cost a huge amount of manpower. The camera isn't going to use AI to go and testify in court. It's going to need a member to go and in t- introduce the evidence, so maybe your guest can answer my questions.
0: Yeah, yeah for sure. Um, so really good question. So the cost of the cameras, um, Toronto recently installed a pile of cameras. They, um, they set them up, and they were actually... Uh, They cost about $50,000 a camera, and in the first year of their program, it gave out uh, 227,322 tickets. And so what they found was a lot of times, well, the revenue from the cameras pays for the camera maintenance and operation, and the additional revenue in Toronto's case would go to road safety measures. And the goal here is actually to lose money over time. We want to be improving road safety and increasing compliance. And so the idea is that the tickets that a, a camera will get pay for its operation and maintenance, and then, oh, it sounds like and it, it sounds like it would
1: pay pay for itself many times over very quickly. How, how are you going to lose money on, on a system like this, man? It sounds like a money maker.
0: Well, the, the goal ultimately is to make our roads safer. So we're taking that money and we're yeah. redesigning our roads and we're working on driver education. And this is whenever I hear that, the first thing I think is if we think this is going to be a massive money maker, what we're saying is that law breaking is widespread on our roads, and those laws are there to keep people safe. And so if we're making lots of money off cameras, we have a deeper problem, which is our roads mm. aren't safe. And that's dangerous for other drivers. It's dangerous for vulnerable road users. Okay. And so I think we, I would reframe the conversation of why are people breaking the laws? Is it badly designed roads? Is it you know, bad habits? Is it bad enforcement? And In this case, the cameras deal with one small aspect of that. And just another question on, um, on challenging them in court. Most of these uh, kinds of cameras are not really disputed because you have very clear evidence, but there obviously uh, have to be some, you know, some uh, logistics worked out around that.
1: Lauren calling from Phoenix. Hi, Lauren. Go ahead.
4: Well, first of all, if you want to improve road safety, my friend, why don't you increase the speed limits? Phoenix, Gilbert area, Las Vegas, surface street speed limits 45 miles an hour. Your speed limits are too low to begin with. If you're that concerned about safety, my friend, why put it over to the provincial government? Don't give municipalities the authority. They're looking for cash. I mean, anybody with any common sense can understand what this guy hiding behind the safety, looking for cash. People okay. are sick and tired. You know, it's just it's overwhelming. And okay, th- thank anybody thank anybody thank you for it? the thank you for the call.
1: Thank you for the call. Just, we have one minute oh, left, councillor. Go hold ahead.
0: On. Okay, it, increasing speed is not going to keep our roads safer. All of the evidence indicates that slower speeds save lives. If a car strikes a pedestrian at 30 kilometers an hour, there's a 9 in 10 chance that pedestrian will survive. If a car strikes a pedestrian at 60 kilometers an hour, there's a 0% chance that pedestrian will, su- will survive. So the caller is completely wrong and the opposite on this. We need to be reducing our speeds and cities have been asking, municipalities have been asking the provincial government to allow us to do blanket speed reductions across the board. The province hasn't done that. So here in Sandwich, mm. we're actually doing street by street, reducing the speed limits because we want to keep people alive.
1: Counselor, thank you for your time today. Call's still coming in, so we'll just have to have you back. <laughs> Always a pleasure to talk to you about road safety, my friend. Okay. All right, let's talk traffic tickets on the show right now and specifically parking tickets. You know, I don't think there's much worse than getting a parking ticket. I absolutely hate that if that happens, try to avoid it at all costs is just such a waste of money and they can really hammer you too. Especially if you go in some of these private lots and you get one of these massive huge tickets, parking in a private lot. Here's something else that really bugs me. Let's say you go into one of those private lots, you figure you're going to be a couple of hours uh, that you need to park, so you pay up front. Right? So you pay for your two hours of parking and then guess what? Oh, half an hour you get your Aaron's done earlier and so now you've paid for what? An extra 90 minutes of parking that you didn't use. That that sucks. That's not fair. There's got to be a better way. What if you get a parking ticket that's not fair at all? Can you fight back? Well, it's difficult to fight back against some of these tickets but you can do it. I once got a ticket that I felt was definitely unfair at a municipal parking meter. The information on the ticket was wrong. I paid for my parking. The ticket said I, I had not paid. I disputed it. I won. Ticket was canceled. I got Paul Doroshenko standing by to talk about parking tickets here. Have a listen to this here now. This guy's name is Joshua Browder. Now, he is the CEO of a company in the U.K. called Do Not Pay. And what this company does is they use artificial intelligence to dispute unfair traffic tickets. So if you are going to fight a ticket, this app, this cell phone app, this program will do it for you automatically using artificial intelligence. Have a listen to him here.
7: I think it shows just how unfair these parking tickets are. From my experience, councils and local governments are issuing tickets not because people are doing
6: things wrong for the most part, but to raise revenue. And I think that's what taxes are for and not these kind of arbitrary parking tickets um, like given out randomly.
1: Well, OK, if you can get like a robo lawyer... You know, an artificial intelligence to fight your ticket for you, that'd be kind of handy. Probably doesn't work for everybody, but he claims a pretty good success rate. Let's talk about all this now with my guest, Paul Doroshenko, traffic lawyer at Acumen Law, and I'm very pleased to welcome him back. Paul, thank you very much for coming on today.
5: Hi, Mike. Nice to talk to you.
1: Yeah, it's great to have you here. So let's talk a little bit, first of all, about some of these unfair systems they have in some of these parking lots, right, like where you have to pay up front. Like, if you pay for, let's say, two hours of parking or more, and you don't use all that time, you, you, you typically don't get your money back, right? You don't get credit for that unused time?
5: No, and think about that. 20 years ago, you'd go to a lot, and there was somebody sitting in a booth, and you'd drive out, and you would pay on your exit, right? Yeah. Um, and, of course, they eliminated that. Basically, they, they were able to get rid of that person, paying that person's wage, um, you know, el- eliminated the job. Uh, and the way they eliminated it was making you prepay for time that you're probably not going to need to use. Um, and so there's very few locations now where you're not expected to prepay for a bunch of extra time. Uh, and really, it's you know it's quite fundamentally unfair. Um, there's a uh, fellow who wrote a uh, an uh, uh, opinion letter to a local newspaper, his name's Heinstein. Uh, yes. And uh, he pointed this out. He's an 80-year-old guy, and he's absolutely right. You know, when you go to the Vancouver airport... And you park in the main parking lot, you drive out and you pay for the parking that you that used, right? You're not expected to pay for the next 24 hours or something like that. But if you go to the south terminal, you've got to pay in advance. Oh, So, you know, if you're flying on, uh, uh, out of the south terminal, you've got to pay for days in advance. And, and if you get back at 1 o'clock, you know, 1 p.m., you have to pay for the day or 1 a.m. You have to pay for the day you know, if you're parking there for a couple of days. And really, like, you're thinking about the fairness of this because they're double-dipping, right? Like, they're using that same spot somebody else is coming when you drive out and parking there, and they're getting paid twice. Again, they don't have to pay for the labor. And it's just because they've been able to automate this um, and be able to, you know, come up with systems. And, And we've sort of casually gone along, and we've all been sort of willing to accept this. And this fellow pointing it out, He's right. <laughs> He's right.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. And the same thing was going through my mind. The the exact words you just said there is this double dipping, because you think about it now, let's say you, you finish your errands early, you're leaving the parking lot early, you've paid for that parking lot for two hours, you're leaving after half an hour. Well, guess what? Someone else is pulling into that spot behind you, and now they're paying for the same time. So yeah, they're double dipping. Maybe they're even triple dipping. If that guy, if that driver leaves early, the next guy comes in, and maybe you're getting the third person to pay for that spot. So it turns into triple dipping.
5: Yeah, and they get the benefit of the technology that allows them to do this, but they don't go that one step further, which is the technology that's pretty simple, that when you drive out, it sees you drive out by, you know, captures your license plate, and that only charges you for the time that you were there. That would be easy to do, but there's no motivation for them to do it. And I think the only way you could persuade uh, to not even persuade them would be to compel them by legislation. The provincial government would have to step up and say, "You know what? This is a consumer protection issue, and yeah. we don't want people paying for something that they're not getting. Uh, and the parking lot should only be able to charge for for the actual service. And it is a right. service, right?" And there's also
1: a simple technological answer to this because there are parking apps on cell phones that can be used now, and I've used them before too, where you pay for the time that you use. So when you finish parking, you can click on your app, and you can get any kind of leftover fees. If you've overpaid, you can get a refund. I mean, it is not rocket science. We can figure this stuff out.
5: Absolutely, there's a hundred different yeah. ways you can do it. Even if you don't have the app, you know, maybe you could take a photograph of your ticket and email it to them as you drive out, and they can use the timestamp on the email uh, as the time to stop charging you for your, right. you know, the, the the parking rate. I mean, there's there's easy ways to do it. But there's no motivation to do it. And the only way you could force them to do it would be legislation. And I'll tell you, there'll never be a provincial election won or lost on this issue. So how are you going to ever persuade the government to do it? You know, I, I, I don't see the hue and cry, but it's pretty unfair.
1: Let's talk about fighting an unfair ticket, Paul. And someone told me once that there's a difference between receiving a municipal parking ticket from the the police or from the local municipality that is backed by the effectively backed by the government where they can compel you, compel you to pay but if you get a parking ticket on a private lot then that is i've been told that's like different that's all that's actually not really much a ticket it's more like a like a contract or a receipt that you've been given can they can they hunt you down like let's say you get a fine for overstaying in a in a private parking lot can they sick like a debt collector on you if you don't pay?
5: Well, I mean, they can try all sorts of different things. Uh, you know, it, 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 there's, there's a couple of issues there. Uh, we have a civil resolution tribunal, and if they wanted to take you to the civil resolution tribunal on a contractual breach, that would be their yeah. remedy. Uh, You know, if they're claiming that you're bound by that contract because you parked there, uh, there's probably various different defenses that that, uh, one could advance in those circumstances. I mean, the point is that, you know, you don't want to be in a situation where you're obtaining parking by fraud by not paying. But if you go there and for some reason, uh, you know, you go over by five minutes and you end up with a ticket, uh, you know, should you have to pay $146 when the actual loss to the parking company is five minutes worth of parking? Um, and really yes. that is the, the fundamental issue, right? <laughs> like, that's what it comes down to. So, you know, in my view, you should only have to pay for the extra parking, and that has been the position that I've taken for a long time. The parking companies take the position that this is a contract. Well, you know what? Let them fight it out at the Civil Resolution Tribunal. They can they can bring their okay. claim against you.
1: So let's say you park five minutes overtime. Let's say you park for, <laughs> you pay for an hour of parking, and you park for an hour and five minutes, and then they write you up for a ticket. So you're saying that, you should just be able to, what, send them a check or whatever for the five minutes worth of parking, and that, that would be a fair resolution of that.
5: Well, I right? think it is, and I've done that uh, in the past. You know, it's been a, a while since I've done it. Uh, I know other people have ended up with, uh, with battles with them, but most of the time it's a settlement, right? You know, it's a, yeah. they're, they're alleging a contractual breach. You're alleging that there isn't a contractual breach, or if there was, they're seeking a remedy that's outside of the, uh, the, the realm of something that's fair or reasonable. Uh, and, uh, you know, basically, you're, you know, you're, you're defending it and you're making them an offer. If you send them a check, you make them an offer. If they accept the offer, which, frankly, in my submission would be the wise thing to do, uh, because that's fair, then, uh, then it's done, right?
1: All right, we're talking parking tickets with my guest, Paul Doroshenko. Lots of phone calls here. Let's get right at it. Layton calling from Langley. Hi.
7: Hi there. Um, I had a couple of quick things. Uh, one is, like, how do they even get your address? I, I think ICBC gives it to them, which I don't think is right. And the other point is I don't really think it is a real ticket. I'm talking about, like, from in-park, because what legal right do they have to give me a ticket? All you have to do is just don't park in their lots anymore, and they won't tow you. But I don't know if they have a legal right to make you pay a ticket. Oh,
5: Well, uh, parking companies getting access to ICBC database, uh, that is a big concern. Um, Of course, they do have access uh, to some limited extent to be able to find out, you know, who's related to that plate. They've got to be able to do that to provide that service. Uh, One wonders what information they get, how much information they get. But, yeah, they do get information, uh, and uh, it's not really clear to me what, uh, (laughs) what the limits are to that. With respect to them issuing you a ticket, I mean, what is it? It's basically a demand letter. It's a demand letter that they're putting on your car saying, look, you, you violated the terms of our contract, and this is what we're saying are the damages, and this is, you know, aggravated damages because the contract says this. That's their position. Uh, of course, you know, uh, the convenience of being able to park at an at in-park uh, might persuade you to uh, to try and resolve that so you're not going to get towed next time.
1: Let's go to Sam in Vancouver. Hi, Sam. Go ahead.
4: Hey, how you doing? Um, Good. So I, I'm going to tell you how I deal with tickets. Whenever I go to a parking lot or a meter at the city of Vancouver, I always pay. However, if I get a ticket, I never pay the ticket. And Paul can attest to this. He, he can tell me if I'm right or wrong. But what, what the deal is, is they have two years to collect the, the fine or whatever they allege or take you to court. And the debt goes away after two years. So I never pay them. I get the letters, I ignore them. And it goes mm. to they call my phone, it goes to, you know, my junk mail. And I just don't pay them. And every year, my little trick is I go and pay twenty bucks and I change my license plates. And I start <laughs> fresh again. Oh, man. Okay. Oh, man. So there's a system out there, Mike. You gotta <laughs> know how to play this system. And most oh. people don't want it. And and Paul can tell you. They cannot, even the city of Vancouver, they cannot put this on your property tax, nothing. There's no way to collect it. And I just, okay. the tickets are so egregious, I just don't pay.
1: Paul, is this, is all this true?
5: Uh, no, I will tell you okay. a colleague of mine had a warrant for his arrest once for unpaid traffic tickets um, and uh, in the city of Vancouver. Uh, they, uh, they won't let it go for forever. Uh, they'll figure it out. They're not stupid. You know, the uh, government has been governing for, Forever, and we've had we've had parking regulations for forever, and they've thought about every little trick that you can possibly come up with. Well, uh, what about again, what about
1: Sam? What about Sam's trick? There, he changes his license plate.
5: Yeah, they they, they know that they'll figure it out. They'll tow yeah. his vehicle. Um, so you know what happens is they know even if you, I've got five cars, right? I drive a different car. They know, uh, and they just will tow your vehicle next time, and they can do that, and then you end up paying your stuff oh, in order boy. to get your vehicle out. I mean, it's not. Uh, the other thing is, like again, I would discourage anybody from setting out to to violate the law. And if you've yeah. got a uh, parking ticket at a meter, uh, you know, uh, contact the city, which you can do, uh, and you may be able to resolve it with that way. When it comes to private law, of course, that's a different a different angle.
1: Let's go to John in North Van. Hi, John. Go ahead.
5: Hey, how you guys doing? My um,
0: my issue is with Easy Park. They're a private uh, private firm. I parked there, and when I punched in the, my license plate number, I, I was off by one letter. So when I got back to my car, there was a you know, $68 ticket there. And it says right on the back of the ticket, if you punch in your license plate wrong and want to dispute this ticket, and they give you an email and a phone number. So I said, oh, it's fine. I'll just go home and phone them and email them.
5: Okay.
0: Number one, they don't answer your call. They don't answer your phone calls when you phone the number. You go on hold for 15 minutes, so you get 15 minutes of Barry Manilow music, and then it cuts off. They just cut you off. Okay, listening again, to Barry Manilow again. is probably
1: probably worse than the fine. Uh, Paul, what do you think?
5: Well, that's how they win, right? <laughs> you know, that's how they win. They stymie you in the process, and you've got to have steely resolve. In order to yeah. uh, in order to get beyond it, and of course, Easy Park is owned by the city of Vancouver. Uh, and if you've ever tried to contact the city of Vancouver for anything, uh, you're probably very frustrated. I mean, years ago they switched to three one one for everything, and you're trying to contact a police officer, and you know who you need, and you spend forty five minutes going through their their system to try and get somewhere, and then ultimately, you know, you get shunted to somewhere that it clicks it and shuts you off, and then you're gone. Uh, so that's how they win.
1: Hey Paul, what's your uh, if people want to contact you if they're looking for help on a traffic issue, where can they reach you?
5: Oh yeah, they can find us on our website, vancouvercriminallaw.com. I'm also Paul Doroshenko uh, on Twitter. Paul, thanks for coming Sorry, on today. Paul. Yeah, nice to speak with you, Mike.
1: Right, let's talk about Wreck Beach now. or the troublemakers wrecking the beach for everybody else? Vancouver's only nude beach, super popular with locals and tourists. You don't have to take your clothes off. It is a clothing-optional beach, very popular, especially in the summertime. You can understand why. If you're going to go au naturel, be nice if it's warm out. But is Wreck Beach a victim of its own success here? Lots of problems down there. Have a listen to this report from Global News reporter Jordan Armstrong.
0: B.C.'s most
5: famous nude beach needs more police patrols. So says the local government body responsible for maintaining Wreck Beach. A staff report going before the Metro Vancouver Regional Parks Committee tomorrow states that visits to the beach west of UBC are up 44% in five years and with that they say are more issues with crowd control, overdoses And beach fires.
1: All right, let's discuss now with my guest Judy Williams from the Wreck Beach Preservation Society, and I'm very pleased to welcome Judy to the show. Judy, thank you very much for coming on today.
7: You're very welcome,
1: Judy. You are a legend down there, boy. How long have you been down there with the with the Wreck Beach Preservation Society now?
7: Well, it's been over 30 years. (laughs) Yeah, I
1: thought so. Good for you. I think that's awesome, Judy. Let me ask you about the the situation on the beach right now. You heard in that report number of visitors up over 40 percent what have you been seeing down there
7: well it's been extremely busy and uh but fairly peaceful i mean when you have large crowds and you're bound to have some interactions but basically the the regulars down there um uh, help keep the peace
1: okay is it kind of like you know, self-policing down there. I mean, if someone starts causing problems, what? How do you guys work it out?
7: Well, it depends on the individual. It depends on the individual whether they have um, emotional problems or whether they have had too much to drink or imbibed uh, otherwise. Um, I think it, it. 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 When we need to step in to keep the peace, we do.
1: Mhm. Uh-huh. What do you think about the idea of more police officers down there?
7: I think that it's um probably overreaction. I don't think oh. that we need an increased police force because the, the the police who are down there they're pretty darn nice people and uh, they work with the beach community not against it.
1: Okay, is it difficult access for the police down there like I'm wondering if there's let's say someone has an overdose down there? Um, is it difficult for paramedics to get down there? Because I think it's what three hundred steps down those stairs.
7: Well, it's more than that. Uh, okay. what, what can happen is the hovercraft is is sort of our ambulance, and, and it can get people in there very quickly if need be.
1: Okay. And is that wor- Is that working well?
7: Well, it is if the hovercraft is available and not on another run. But that's the that's the rub. That's the problem. Okay. It would take um, uh, paramedics. Uh, maybe five minutes to get down to the base of the trail if they're okay. really, really moving.
1: We heard in that report there, Judy, that there's a, a request for more police officers uh, because of the problems, booze, drugs, overdoses, beach fires. So, I mean, there obviously there are troubles down there, as you described there, but you don't think it's as bad as all that?
7: I don't think it requires uh, stepped-up police presence. I think that the police who do come down are fairly um, known are known to the beach community, and they work together. I don't think it's as severe as what they're saying. Okay. and I, I... I don't know that we need increased police presence. I really don't. I mean, <laughs> Brick Beach is a place of peace. Yes, it has its problems, but what mm. beach doesn't have its problems? It's just the fact that we're nude that is the I think, the stumbling block for authorities.
1: Really? You think it's because it's a clothing op, it's a nude beach? You think the police, user- people get targeted down there?
7: Um, targeted? No, I didn't say that.
1: Oh, um, okay. Well, I'm sorry. What is your point there you're making?
7: The point I'm making is that if people are well-behaved and uh, not a problem, then we, we um, the police have their beat, they come down, they're they're um, they're there to just be a presence, and just the mm-hmm. presence alone is enough, I think, to keep most people in line. Mm-hmm. If they're getting a little rowdy. But I know that we do appreciate the police presence. We do appreciate the medics who come down. We appreciate mm-hmm. the hovercraft who provides emergency service, ambulance service, if you like, because it's our it's our ambulance. They can, if someone is really severely hurt. Um, but that's if the hovercraft isn't on another call, like, say, in yeah. Nanaimo or something. Oh.
1: Speaking of Judy Williams, Rec Beach Preservation Society. Judy, I know there have been concerns over uh, development down in that area in the past, and your group is, has spoken out about that. Is is there, um, is there talk of a road being built down there for easier well, yeah, access uh, to the beach?
7: No, well, there better not be a talk of a road, because we'll block it. It's as simple as that. No roads to Rift Beach.
1: Well, that's, you're pretty I'm firm on be, that.
7: I'm, I'm prepared to put my body, and my naked body, right in front of any bulldozers that would try to, to make a road down there. We don't uh, want uh, a road. We don't need a road.
1: Have there, been, have there been efforts over the years to try and develop down there?
7: Oh, there have been, yes. And yeah. we've met them all. Mm-hmm. and, uh, and we 'll continue to meet them all. I mean the preservation of that beautiful, wondrous beach is is the the purpose of the Refuge Preservation Society to preserve it in as nearly a natural state as we can and uh, you know that means no access roads, even if it 's an emergency access road because it would, there was no, there would be no way that you could block the general public from using the emergency access road and mm-hmm. break down the gates. Whatever you know, and it, it, this is the way that that we accommodate our, our 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 visitors. They are welcome, but they have to understand it's a remote beach, and there's not going to be roads with ambulance. Our ambulance is a hovercraft when when it becomes very very necessary. And uh, then we have what we we call our Sherpas, uh, who are uh, are our vendor uh, carriers, and uh, they can help take people up to the top of the stairs if necessary, too.
1: Hey, Judy, we had a caller on the open line in the show earlier today about Rec Beach who said that th- there is a problem there with, with people who come down. They're perverts or peeping toms or people come down le- leering at people in the nude. And, you know, these days everyone has a cell phone in their in their pocket with a camera on it, I remember in the old, in the in pre pre cell phone days, it was it was a lot easier to detect if someone was taking photos of nude people down there. Is that is that a difficult more difficult problem these days?
7: Well, with the cell phones, it, it can be a problem. But if we know if we find anybody who's um, uh, 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 taking photographs with without permission, uh, their cell phones sometimes end up in the salt water. Oh. But- so I would advise people who want to just come down and be peeping toms or to take illegal photographs without permission, then better leave their cell phones at home, or they might lose them.
1: Okay, Judy, what's your last question for you? What's your message there to the uh, the park committee there that talking about more police down there on the beach? Are you saying you don't need the poli- extra police down there now?
7: I don't think we need the police to the extent that that they seem to think. I've read the reports now. They didn't bother to inform us or to ask our advice when they were putting together this report. I only found out about it after it was tabled at uh, the GVRD headquarters. And then I had to scramble to get copies so I could read it. In the past, past uh, uh, authorities at uh, West Area Parks welcomed our input and our advice. And then uh, and then we were asked to step down from one of the um, uh, community, um, uh, I guess it was the community um, um, community community organizations uh, and uh, the GBRD staff, and we were invited as Rec Beach um, uh, representatives. And then they decided they weren't going to have us there any longer, so we couldn't mm. keep a finger on the pulse of whatever was coming down the pipe. So, okay. you know, they should, they should put a, a Rec Beach representative back on that committee of, of the caregivers and the first responders. Uh, it would right. really help to have a Rec Beach representative there as well.
1: Judy, thank you for your time today. I appreciate it a lot.
7: Well, you're very welcome. Anytime. Thank you.
1: Welcome to the Mike Smith Show podcast. This is your one-stop shop for all the latest happenings in BC, from breaking news and developing stories to giving the big headlines a closer look. The Mike Smith Show is here to keep you dialed in and up to date. Let's begin.